Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Welcome back, everybody, to another amazing episode of For the Love of Money. I am so excited for today's guest. But before we get there, I've got to share something really awesome with you, something really exciting with you, and that is tickets for the Bliss Project are finally available to the public. Every single year, we first release a batch to previous attendees, and then whatever's left over, we release to the public. And the Bliss Project, you already know about it. It is one of the most epic self-development, self-growth weekends available out there, put on by my amazing wife, Lori Harder. So if you're curious, if you want one of the handfuls of remaining tickets left, Go check it out at theblissproject.info. Again, that is theblissproject.info. It is a game-changing and life-changing weekend, guaranteed. Now, today's guest I am geeking out over because not only is she a friend, not only is she somebody that we respect and consider a mentor, but she is also a best-selling author of three different books, one of the most sought-after speakers in business and self-development today, and also a reality show host. Christine Hassler and I sit down, and we talk about how self-love can make you more successful. We talk about why contribution is a very important part in success. We talk about what an expectation hangover is and why it's holding you back in business. And we have a great conversation about wealth the energy around gaining wealth, and how to finally bust through so many of your limiting money mindset beliefs. Christine is going to walk you right through how to get over the things that are holding you back from what you really want. So get ready, get excited, and listen up, because here we go. All right, Christine, thank you so much for being on. I'm like wildly grateful. I am wildly grateful and excited to be here too. This was meant to be. I mean, we've started out having good conversations at the gym and then it yep. kind of migrated to good conversations on the couch when you'd stay here once in a while, which might sound weird. Don't worry, everybody. Lori was here as well. Yes. And you you let me sleep in a bed. I didn't have to sleep on the couch. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so it's only natural that they would migrate to a podcast episode so we can let everybody kind of listen in as well, right? Yes, and you are someone who totally made me feel like a celebrity because before I officially met you, you knew who I was because Lori and I had connected and you walked up to me at Equinox and you're like, are you Christine Hassler? And I was like, oh, yes, I am. I totally remember <laughs> on the on the outdoor part there. It was awesome. Yeah, the look yeah. on your face was actually priceless. <laughs> it was a good moment. So that's kind of a good lead in. Everybody always wants to get to know you before we start you know, talking about advice or any of mm-hmm. that stuff. And I kind of want to back up to the beginning, you know, before becoming a best-selling author of three different books and before becoming the sought after speaker and now reality show host, you name it, everything you touch <laughs> turns to gold. Who was Christine Hassler Not everything. before? Yeah, right. <laughs> Who was Christine Hassler before all that? <clears throat> Excuse me. Good question. Oh, we got to go back a little while to like, you know, our formative years, because that's kind of where it all begins for so many of us. And as a kid, I I really fought hard to belong. I felt different. I was young for my grade. I was a nerd. I was teased and bullied a lot. I just had some things happen that made me feel like I didn't belong. I also had some health problems that kind of made me feel a bit broken. And whenever something like that happens to us, whenever we feel we're less than or not deserving or we have some kind of traumatic event, and even for kids, something as simple as moving can be traumatic. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, someone died. It it can be simple things that just upset your world that really kind of shift what you believe. And when we have those things, we come up with what I like to call compensatory strategies, ways to make ourselves feel better, ways to survive and give ourselves a sense of identity. And so my particular compensatory strategy was to become an overachiever. I thought, well, if I don't belong, no one really likes me. If I'm a little awkward, if my health isn't that great, then 
I'll just be really smart and I'll get good grades and I'll be super successful. So that started at a pretty young age. I mean, I was put on antidepressants when I was about 11 or 12 because I was just having, I had so much worry, so much anxiety, um, and I was just really struggling. And again, that's probably not a choice that my parents would make today, given everything we know. But back then, that was, you know, they saw me suffering and, and that's what we decided to do. So that kind of reinforced the something's wrong with me belief. And I, like I said, just got straight A's, moved along, went to college, graduated in three and a half years with a double major and a minor, and then decided to move to the place where a lot of insecure people with something to prove go, Hollywood. <laughs> so I moved out to Hollywood thinking, you know, I didn't want to be an actress because I had tried being a kid actor and rejection was like my core issue. You know, like I felt like my peers rejected me, boys rejected me. And I have so much respect for people who pursue acting and writing in all those fields because you have to deal with a lot of no's before you get a yes. And I wanted, you know, more quote unquote control. I'm still nursing my addiction to control. And so I went behind the camera and I thought, well, I'll be, you know, a producer or something like that. What ended up happening is I became an agent. I started out as an assistant, worked my way up, worked in production for a little while, worked at Paramount and TV, and then ended up becoming an agent at um, a place called Artist Management Group, which was kind of, we were kind of majents, we were half agents and managers. And I represented TV writers, producers, and directors. And there I was, 24 years old, maybe 25. I was making six figures. I was dating the head of a movie studio. So between my life and his life, it was Oscars and Golden Globes and Jets and hanging out with celebrities all the time. And I had this life, Chris, from the outside that looked really amazing. But inside, I was still miserable. I was still insecure. I was brutally hard on myself. Like my inner critic was fierce. I had no idea what self-love was. I was still on antidepressants. By then, also anti-anxiety pills. I was suffering from migraines as well. I was just kind of a wreck. And at 22, I was, you know, having trouble with my boyfriend and I was at lunch with a friend and she's like, you know, I just went to see this woman. Her name's Mona. I don't know if she's a therapist. I don't know what she is, but she really helped me. And I said, ah, I've been to tons of therapists. Like I'm so sick of psychoanalyzing myself. And she said, no, this is kind of different. So I go see this woman named Mona who lived in the Valley and her house was kind of stuck in 1984 in terms of the decor. And she was just kooky. And I sat across from her, totally judging her. Like, what is this woman going to do? She put me in, um, I saw her at her house and she put me in her son's room where there were like race car bunk beds. And I'm like, oh, this is so unprofessional. <laughs> Creepy. Uh, yeah. And, um, and Chris, it was the first time I felt like someone saw me with zero judgment. She, she was tough and she was honest, but she loved me unconditionally. She saw me through a lens of nothing is wrong with you. You are not broken. And that was the first kind of time I had experienced really sitting across from someone who believed that I had the tools I needed inside to change my life. Now, it took me a while. I was stubborn. I held on to belief systems. I struggled in my job, you know, not liking it. Um, and finally at 26, after, you know, with her support, I decided I was going to quit my job and start to pursue more of what I loved. And it, <laughs> I thought it would be this easy thing. Like I'd quit and discover my passion and it would be super easy. I actually was a trainer. I went into health and fitness and then everything just kind of came crashing down. My fiance dumped me six months before our wedding. I got diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder on top of everything else. I went into massive debt. I was estranged from my family for a time. And like I said, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and my career. And I was still looking for that purpose outside of me. So then things got really serious in terms of me becoming a seeker and me becoming a student of personal growth. I went to see Mona Moore. I went to Landmark Forum. I devoured personal growth books. I saw different healers. And I started to understand that the external cannot fulfill the internal and that we have these kind of core wounds that end up defining our life unless we heal them. And we have this amazing mind that we can use really to create the life we want, but we've got to change some major belief systems and behaviors. So becoming that kind of seeker started to change my life. And I wanted to share that. And, and also there was still a part of me that was like, I wanted to be big, you know, I wanted to have this big fancy career. So between like wanting to serve people and honestly, you know, wanting to do something big, I was like, I'm going to write a book about this. And that was 20 something, 20 everything. And launching that book 
got me super clear about how important it is to serve and share. And that started my whole career as, as a coach and shifted my orientation from just trying to be successful on the outside level to really walking the talk and making myself my own best client and really creating a business and a life that was based on growth. So I'm sorry that was such a long story, but <laughs> it's it's kind of necessary to paint the picture because it wasn't like one day I woke up and I was like, oh, I want to do this. No, that was a perfect story. I, I wish everybody would actually tell their story that clear because people already find so much value in the journey, right? If somebody mm -hmm. is kind of in the beginning of where you were or in the middle of where you are, where you where you were, they find strength from that. So thank you for sharing that. I've got to ask you. You actually said. Um, in the beginning, you liked the glitz and the glamour and, and you still mm -hmm. obviously want to pursue a very successful career and, and lifestyle and all that. Where does that desire for mm -hmm. that very successful life come from? Was it just because you were bullied and had some health problems as a child or was there something else that fed into that? Well, I think it was a couple things. I think that I was always, you know, when I was a little girl, I used to play teacher. That was the only thing I liked to play teacher and bank. <laughs> I didn't like to play house. I didn't, you know, I played outside, but those were the things that I really loved to do. And I think as we're little, we have those kind of seeds in there. And so I, I love to teach and I love to share. I love to learn and teach. And, you know, I, I even though part of being a straight A student was compensatory, I also really love school. So I think that I have found that, you know, success to me is doing things that we love. And I love learning and I love teaching and I love creating. You know, I, I also really loved writing. So I think all of that was there. And the insecurities, um, they just, they were motivating. They drove me for a really long time. But the, the problem with insecurities driving us is that it's depleting. It's effective. Like I know a lot of people who... Um, are very, very successful and very driven, but they do it because they're really hard on themselves and they're trying to make up for something. And so through my own personal development journey, I've shifted it from creating success from being driven to really creating success from feeling inspired and doing things I love. And, and I feel like the more that we, we do that and we're in alignment with our zone of genius and both the gifts we were born with and the life experiences that have taught us things that naturally makes us more successful because we're in alignment with what I like to call our own unique secret sauce of what we're here to do and who we're here to serve. So how do you make that shift? Because I can't tell you how many interviews I do where somebody has a chip on their shoulder or I'll show you, or yeah. you, know, you can't keep me down. And those are all the reasons why they became successful to the point where they are today. But like you said, that is absolutely draining and it's going to catch yeah. up with you at some point. How do you make that transition from driven, as you put it mm -hmm. to inspired? Well, you know, it's not an overnight process. That is for sure. Um, and I couldn't have done it without the teachers and coaches and training I have, you know, when I, um, after I was a life coach for about maybe three years, I went and got my master's degree in spiritual psychology from the university of Santa Monica, which is a beautiful program. I was on faculty there too. And it's, it's foundation of a lot of my, my work. And so I, I don't think it's something we can necessarily do on our own. You know, we need not need, but it's, it's helpful to have guides in that because we all have our own blind spots. You know, Chris, I still work with a coach. I will always work with a coach because I want to continue to grow and I want to see my blind spots. And sometimes we need, you know, either a, a training program or a person to kind of hold that space for us and hold a mirror up to us so we can see ourselves through a different lens. And that that's kind of the foundation of it is we've got to start seeing ourselves differently. And if we continue to see ourselves through the eyes of our inner critic, it's really hard to move from a, from a place of inspiration because that inner critic is always like, it's not enough. That wasn't enough. You could have done better. You could have done more. And then we stay in that drive. So if we want to come from inspiration, we've got to find that voice of self-love and self-acceptance. It's like, that was great. I'm really proud of you. Okay. What did you learn that you want to implement moving forward? Let's celebrate how awesome that was. And we can always look for ways to learn and make it even better but not from the place of it wasn't good enough. So, you know, I, I see so many people kind of talk about self-love and it's, it's not taking bubble baths and going to yoga and drinking green juice. I mean, that's great. That's all important in terms of self-care, 
But self-love is really about that relationship with ourselves. And that's why people like Mona and USM, where I studied spiritual psychology, it, there were containers in which people were modeling to me what non-judgment looks like, you know, and, and help me get into that space. And, and honestly, Chris, for me, you know, inspiration also comes from being connected to spirit. I use the word spirit. People can use God, universe, higher power, nature, whatever. But knowing that there's something bigger than us, knowing that there's, you know, an energy that flows through us. And so one of the best ways that I feel inspired is I just say, okay, spirit, use me as your instrument. You know, how, what, how do you want me to create today? Let me be kind of a channel. And then I, I blend kind of that inspiration with my more kind of practical, logical mind to create what I create. It used to be reverse. I used to have my practical, rational, masculine side, just make all the decisions and lead the way. And sometimes my intuition or inspiration or creativity would come in. And now I allow inspiration, creativity, intuition to create the ideas and my practical, rational, masculine responds to them rather than leading. Because we need both. But if we want to feel inspired, we got to get out of our rational mind. Well, I love that. It's almost counterintuitive, though, to the way that we want to act or to the way that we want to do it. And that's Correct. the part that you've taken control of. And when you come from that approach, that's when everything's falling into place for you. I love it. Well, yeah. And, and Chris, people don't trust me, me, myself included. Like it took me a while and it's something I still work on. Like, can I really trust that if I work less <laughs> and follow this feeling that feels good, that I'm going to pay my bills and that it's going to be successful? And we want to control. I think, you know, Ron Holnick, who's one of my teachers at USM, always used to say control is a master addiction. And I completely believe that. We're all, we all feel safer when we control. Uncertainty is scary. Taking a leap of faith is scary. You know, there's a free fall when we take it. But I think part of living an inspired life is that willing to be in that space of uncertainty because that's when the magic can come in. If you're controlling and planning and whiteboarding and ever noting every single aspect of your life, where is the room for synchronicity? Where is the room for the magic? Where is the room for inspiration to even come in? I couldn't agree more. And I think that's why sometimes you see people that you may judge them and say, wow, that's the most disorganized or unorganized individual I've ever seen in my life. How did they become successful? But it's because they're not trying to control everything. They're just exactly. creative and, and they can create ideas left and right. And then they put the control maybe into somebody else's hands. Exactly. And that's one thing I've learned about myself. I, I don't want to learn Infusionsoft, which is my email mailing system. <laughs> I don't want to learn how to do Facebook ads. Like it's like, bleh, it drains my energy. There's, there's certain things I love, like take me to a hypnosis seminar. I, oh my gosh, I love learning about that. So I've gotten really clear about what my, what depletes me energetically and, and what doesn't. When I first started my business, Chris, I, I had to learn some of those things, but I got to the point where I, I invest in people where it's their zone of genius and they love it. And this, a mistake I made and I, a mistake I see a lot of entrepreneurs make is thinking they're saving money by not hiring people or by bartering or hiring like a friend to do something rather than someone who's really great at it. And honestly, that cost me a lot of money and time in the beginning of my business, thinking I was saving by not going out and hiring the best people. And, and now that I've transitioned into really investing in myself, investing in my business, having a team, it has completely shifted my business, not just financially, but in terms of impact and in terms of how much more energy I have to work in my zone of genius. Oh my God, I couldn't agree more. We've made that mistake way too many times. Yeah. It took us way too long to figure that out, but you're right. Absolutely. Hire the best right out of the gates. So I want to touch on something else that you mentioned. You said that you currently work with a coach and you will always work with a coach and mm -hmm. you gave some great reasons why, but you yourself are also one of the top coaches that I know works with CEOs and entrepreneurs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I want to get your perspective. What's holding people back the most these days from really earning what they want to earn in business? Their own self-worth. That's the, the key that I see is their own self-worth and their own self-doubt. And it doesn't matter if someone's a CEO or a mom of three who wants to start a health coaching business. The number one obstacle that I see getting in people's way on kind of a life coach psychology level is I don't deserve it. I I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. And so when I work with people, even with CEOs, they, they all want the strategy. They all want, okay, what is step one, two, three that I can make more money? And I'm like, okay, let's bookmark that conversation and come back to like, how do you really feel about yourself? 
you know, what's your relationship with yourself like, and what are your belief systems around what you have to do to earn? Because a lot of people have some kind of fakakta belief systems around making money. Like I have to work really, really hard to make money. Um, I have to do it all on my own to make money. I have to suffer to make money. If I make money, I'm scared I'm going to lose it. So then they just kind of spend it. So it's really also looking at your wealth consciousness. I work with a lot of people on, you know, what are your belief systems around money? That was something I did in my 20s when I was building my business. Um, I read a lot of books like um, the science of getting rich, rich dad, poor dad, the abundance book by John Randolph price, because I realized I had some backwards belief systems around money. So it's those two things. It's, it's looking at the self-worth, which is everything from the doubt and the unworthiness and the deserving to what are the belief systems. And when you can shift those, then you start shifting your ability to earn. Does that make sense? It it makes perfect sense. And, And I believe that actually everybody struggles with this to a certain extent and and someone might listen hear that and say no way because someone's making a million or they're making a hundred million or they're making but the point is you'd be making more if you did not have some set of limiting beliefs that is holding you back because really anything's possible well and a lot of times even if someone's making um, millions of dollars and you're like well that person doesn't have good self-worth you never know what their spending is like You never know what their relationships are like, though there may be other areas where that's showing up. So just because it seems like someone's got it together financially, they may have some good like practices in place. And I totally agree with that. But when you, to me, success is really on all levels, right? Relationships, health, money, family connections, all of those things, um, contribution, really loving what you do. It's really looking at the holistic picture because, because finances aren't the only way that our self-worth issues and our limiting beliefs show up. I couldn't agree more. So I want to talk about same subject, but spiritual entrepreneurs, because I know that you do a lot of work in the spiritual world. And I feel like as a group, this is a group that struggles the most, or let's say a lot with the concept of earning what they're worth or making big money, almost like they have a, a starving artist syndrome. Why is this and how can they bust through it? Oh, yeah, this is um, this is a big one. So uh, let me go kind of woo-woo for a second. So there's something called kind of the unconscious collective, which is if you imagine, okay, so if you think about like colds, right? We can't see the germs that are spread around, but we can catch a cold if we're around somebody that's carrying the virus or bacteria or whatever. Makes sense? Mm-hmm. So... The unconscious collective is kind of like that. There's sort of like a lot of beliefs that are floating around and kind of programming that are floating around that have been floating around for centuries and lifetimes and whatever. And one of those kind of beliefs in the unconscious collective is about kind of the savior archetype, that it's my job to save the world, you know, and take care of people and and save people. And With that, what I see is there's a lot of suffering that goes into that. Like a lot of spiritual entrepreneurs and healers are struggle with finances or relationship or health issues or things like that. They think that they have to suffer to save. And they also feel tremendous like guilt if someone pays them for their services because they're so kind of caught up in it's my job to save. And they're such bleeding hearts and empaths that they end up, you know, help me doing work for nothing or doing too much bartering or not asking for what they're worth. So that's when I work with spiritual entrepreneurs, I really help them kind of disconnect from that conscious or unconscious belief that it's my job to save people and take care of people and money shouldn't be important because that's the other thing. A lot of quote unquote spiritual people have judgments about money that it's the root of all evil, that it corrupts people, that it quote unquote shouldn't matter. But what I say to spiritual entrepreneurs is money, money does matter and it's energetic and it's just another reflection of our overall well-being. And we chose to come into this human experience. Like we, everyone listening is having a human experience. And part of the dance of this human experience is the exchange of money. So with a lot of spiritual people, they kind of resist the human experience. And it's like, no, we're here. So that's part of it. And if you want to truly help people and truly be an instrument, truly serve, then you've got to really own your own worth because you're going to be able to serve more people and you're going to be able to help more people and not think that money is the root of all evil and that everyone is your responsibility to save. 
So like a tactical thing when I work with spiritual entrepreneurs is really help them know what their rates are and, and help them talk about money and help them with enrollment conversations and, and really get clear on asking for what they're worth. And then set aside like how much work they want to do per year that's pro bono or on a sliding scale. And so that that kind of balances out, well, there may be people I want to help that can't afford it. That's fine. You know, I'm considering, I, you know, I do a lot of pro bono stuff per year. I have a certain number and a certain amount of time of pro bono that I set aside per year. And that's wonderful. It makes me feel like I'm contributing. I'm reaching people that I couldn't normally help. Um, but as a business person too, I've really had to own my own worth, you know, and I, I remember I had a coach, his name is Steve Chandler. He's, he's awesome. He coaches a lot of coaches and I hired him probably four years ago. And by then I was coaching a decade and I told him my rates and he was just silent. And I was like, hello, are, are you there? Hello? <laughs> and he said, Hmm, that seems a bit out of integrity to me, doesn't it? And I was like, Oh wow. It kind of is. I'm playing small and telling people I can coach them to playing big. Wow. That doesn't make a lot of sense. That's incredible. I feel like you just freed up so many people in that last three minutes. All of that ah. was the most insane <laughs> um, breakthrough type of advice I could I could ever imagine. Well, good. I hope it helps people because, you know, with, with spiritual entrepreneurs and healers, you, you're, I, but this is one thing I've noticed. Um, when you really step into your worth, and that includes financially, a couple things happen. One, your gifts will come through even stronger. They, they really start to because it's actually restrictive and contractive to not step into your prosperity. Also, the type of people you will attract may change. And a lot of times the people that you attract who are willing to invest in you are also more serious about changing their health, changing their mind. And those people will be able to impact more people. What I love about the level that I coach at now and the kind of people that work with me and believe me, all people that work with me are not millionaires. A, a lot, you know, have to take out a loan and, and part of our work is in figuring out how to pay that back, right? And stepping into financial prosperity. But they have such strong commitment and strong intention. And I want to work with people who are willing to change. You know, that's one thing my coach always calls me forward on when I'm kind of being defensive or, you know, sliding back. She's like, step up. I'm here to serve you. Do you want it or not? <laughs> and that's the level I want to play at. And when healers and spiritual entrepreneurs start to get really clear and really in integrity with their worth and their value, you change who you attract, you change how you work, and you're able to impact more people. You know, you just said something that gave me a breakthrough and, and probably a lot of other people, and I don't even know if you intended it to be this way, but you said some people actually take out a loan to work mm -hmm. with you. And some mm -hmm. people's first gut hit might be like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. You know, like that's a little extreme, isn't it? But yeah. wow, is that a demonstration of how sure you are in your value that you have to offer that you are willing to work with somebody who even takes out a loan in order to afford your services? Because I would imagine somewhere in your journey, you would have heard somebody say, well, I'd have to take out a loan for that. You say, well, never mind. Let's work it out. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And we have a lot of conversations about what that would look like, what the plan is moving forward. You know, I can think of one of my clients, um, her first name is Connie and she's, she's given me permission to share her story. She, you know, really had to scrape together the money and take out a loan and all this kind of stuff. And Right now, she is living her dream job. She's moved. Her marriage has changed. She's making great money. She, everything transformed. Now, that is not because of me. That is because of her and her commitment. So when before I work with somebody who says they want to take out a loan, we get really, really clear on how committed they are because there's, there's a difference, you know, there's the taking out of loan of I'm desperate, you know, I'll do anything. Please help me to, I am doing this. This is my plan. I'm committed. I'm going to do the work. This is going to change things. So when people come to a coach, um, there's some, there should always be a stretch, right? There should always be a stretch and a little like <gasps> kind of nervous excitement. But if you're, if you have the belief of, Oh, this person better fix me and this better work and put all the expectation outside of yourself and come in with a lot of fear and doubt that it's going to work, then don't do it. 
you're ready when you have that belief in yourself that you're, you can, you can change and you can transform and you can create your life. And yes, the coach is part of it that cause that coach creates the container. So working with the right coach is incredibly invaluable. However, we are the only ones that can change our lives. It's absolutely amazing. Talk to me about your own journey with producing the level of abundance and wealth that you want. How has that evolved for you? Uh, well, a couple, couple things, investing, you know, in myself, investing in my own business and personal coaches, investing in hiring people, working on my wealth consciousness. You know, a big thing for me, Chris was, um, so I shared in my twenties, my fiance broke up with me six months before our wedding. Six months later, I met a wonderful man also named Chris. And, uh, two years later we were married and then four years later we were divorced and our, our kind of values and paths just went in different directions, but I truly believe we had, we had a kind of a soul contract and our relationship had an expiration date. And I was fortunate to have a very peaceful divorce. However, any divorce really sucks. <laughs> and I, um, realized that, you know, one of the biggest fears that came up for me in the divorce was financial. He did well. I had my business, but honestly, I kind of leaned on him. And one of the things I had to look at and be really honest with myself about was, projecting financial security onto a man. Cause that was a model I grew up with. My mom stayed at home, my dad worked, and that was kind of what I saw. I grew up in Dallas, that was kind of the trend. And I had a little bit of that, the man's gonna take care of me thing. So one of the biggest things that has impacted my financial abundance was that divorce, was having to get my own place, having to really gear up my business, having to really look at those belief systems, but not projecting that on somebody else, not going to look for somebody else to date or marry, to quote unquote, take care of me and really like own my power and educate myself. You know, I didn't know much about money. I met with a financial planner. I got my own accountant. I started to really look at how the money in my life was working and, and become more curious about it and have transparent conversations with other entrepreneurs about money and what they were charging and how they were doing their books. So it was that level of responsibility and curiosity and, and a little bit of, um, I won't say desperation, but a little bit of, Oh shoot, I gotta, I gotta figure this out that lit a fire under my butt to take responsibility for it. And that's really what shifted things. Wow. I love that. Thanks for your, your transparency on that. You're, you're going to help a lot of people with that answer. I want to kind of shift directions for a real quick moment because sure. you've got this smash hit book called the expectation hangover. And I feel like the expectation, first of all, I'm going to want you to explain what a expectation hangover sure. is, but then I also feel like it applies to business. So can you kind of connect those dots for us? Sure. So an expectation hangover, yes, you've probably never heard of it unless you know me because I made up the term. It's when one of three things happen. One, life doesn't go according to plan. You have a huge, you know, you have a business you want to launch. You think it's going to be a big success. It's not. Or life does go according to plan, but you don't feel like you thought you would. Like my story of having this great job in Hollywood and thinking that was going to make me happy, but still feeling depressed and miserable and insecure. Or three, life just throws you an unexpected, undesirable curveball. You get laid off, you get dumped, you get diagnosed with an illness. You even get a parking ticket, right? It, they can range in severity. But the common theme in all of them is disappointment. It's things not going according to the way we want them to go and us not having control and not liking the circumstances. And why I'm so excited about expectation hangovers, um, and it's a funny thing to be excited about disappointment, but why I am <laughs> is because it's been in my expectation hangovers that the doorways to the most tremendous amount of growth has happened. Now, a lot of that is because those were the times I felt so low that I was like, okay, I'll do anything. And you don't necessarily need expectation hangovers to grow. Now growth is just a value, but oftentimes they are the things that get us on the path or they are something that takes us to the next level. And unfortunately, what most people do is just try to get over them. Just try to cope by overworking or over drinking or, you know, getting involved with someone else or doing a spiritual bypass. Like it, it's all going to be fine. There's a silver lining or just positive self-talk. And they just kind of push through rather than really going, okay, I'm going to really leverage this and really look at what I'm learning from this and use this as a healing opportunity. You know, I like to say, Chris, that you can wait for time to heal your wounds 
or you can dive in and actually do the healing work now. Ooh, I love that. I haven't heard that perspective before, quite honestly, because I always hear the first version you gave. Oh, no problem. I'll push through. I'll find the positive. Mm -hmm. But you're saying kind of sit in it and intentionally heal from it. Yeah, that's what expectation hangover is. I was inspired to write that after my divorce because someone said to me, um, I think it was a, I don't can't remember who it was. I think he was a coach, but he said to me, I told him about the divorce and he said, Christine, milk this for all it's worth. And I said, we're not even using lawyers. I'm not even getting alimony. What are you talking about? Cause I thought he meant financial. He's like, no, 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 no. This isn't just about the divorce. This is about every grief, every breakup, everything you've tried to control that didn't work out. Every time you saw yourself as a failure, milk it for all it's worth. So you don't have to experience this again. And I was like, oh, so, you know, I really just dove in to all the, the tools I learned from Mona and the seminars and USM and everything I was seeing with my own clients and made myself again, my own science experiment and came up with, you know, this, the book, which is basically how to really treat disappointment on the emotional, mental, behavioral, and spiritual level. Because in my experience and my work with clients, unless you kind of take a holistic picture it, 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 you kind of have the same expectation hangovers happening over and over and over again. You can't just think about it. You can't just feel it. You can't just change your actions and you can't just meditate. From my perspective, it really is taking that holistic approach. So now applying this to business, people hold themselves back in business and even financially for a lot of reasons, sure. right? So for fear or a lack of know-how or excuses, et cetera. But one of the biggest, and I feel like least talked about areas where people hold them back and hold themselves back in business is when they've failed in the past, I feel like they tend to be afraid to try again. Mm -hmm. Does this fit mm -hmm. under the blanket of an expectation? Absolutely. Hangover? Absolutely. Any kind of failure is an expectation hangover. I mean, and this is what holds so many people back because I knew, you're an entrepreneur. You talk to tons of entrepreneurs. I'm sure that every entrepreneur's success story includes stories of failure. It's just part of it. Everyone. And the key to expectation hangover, and this is one thing we talk about in the, the spiritual section, and this has been key in my life, is being a seeker, being a student of life. And when you fail, go, okay, not what I planned. You know, feel your feelings about it. Allow yourself to like have your human reaction but then really look at what did I learn? What did I learn here? How, how did I create this? What did I learn? What can I implement moving forward? Instead of seeing it as a setback, it's more of a readjustment, right? Because the universe is constantly giving us feedback. And when we personalize the feedback as rejection or I failed, we miss the memo from the universe. It's not, it's not that we fail. It's not that we're rejected. It's like, nope, not it, not it. Something's out of alignment. You've got to reset recourse. It's like when planes fly, how they know they're going in the right direction is because they go off course and the radar kind of beeps them back on course. So as, as business people, as entrepreneurs, if you can look at any failure as feedback, is there something to learn? There was something a little off course and it's giving you an opportunity to readjust so you can be even more successful in your next endeavor. That's an entirely different way to look at it. But if you take every step terrified, you're going to fail again. Guess what? You're probably going to quote unquote fail again. So they have to look at the failure as feedback. That's one way. How else can they kind of bust through and try again? Because I mean, this is huge. There are people that need some kind of answer or course or something to get them past this hump of, I don't want to yep. fail again. It might be yep. one of the scariest feelings out there. I think it is. And I think that it's really hard to go through alone. And again, that's why I'm such a fan of, of, of having a coach, having someone in your life that can help you through those times. And uh, maybe part of the reason you're going through this is so that you can like finally gift yourself with that experience. And one of the things that I put out to the universe, um, so Mona, the first coach that I, uh, talked about, died in 2014 in a car accident unexpectedly. And that was devastating and shocking for me on many levels. And for a few years, I kind of didn't have someone I was working with because I couldn't, it's like losing the love of your life and trying to date again. It was really hard to find someone that was like her. And I just put out in the universe and I put out in the universe. And about two or three years ago, I met my current coach, Brandy Gilmore. And it was like, Oh my, yes, yes, this is, this is my next level of work. So 
put it out there, like ask for it. If you're in that place of failure and you want to keep going, there's some blind spots there. And the more you under, cause we create our life, right? So yes, it's feedback, but it's also feedback of like, there's something we're doing or thinking or choosing that isn't getting us where we want to go. And oftentimes we need that outside perspective to really get clear on what that is. So don't think you have to do it all on your own. I think that's a mistake a lot of people make when they fail. They go into such a period of self-judgment and um, think that they're worthless and they try to figure it out all on their own and that's just kind of a downward spiral. It's incredible. It's pe- People need to be able to, like you said, sit in it and find the value in that failure and then reach out to people like yourself or courses or whatever it is, mentors in order to get them back in the game. Exactly. 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 And, and to, because a lot of times when people fail, they just go and try to do the same thing, but work harder. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're going <laughs> to muscle through it harder. Yeah. Yeah. And that's often not it. And again, like if you're willing to see it, like, for example, I, you know, I was hired as a relationship expert on a TLC reality show. That's about marriage. I I have a broken engagement and I'm divorced and I'm currently single, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm the relationship expert on a show about marriage. Why did they hire me as the expert? Because my quote unquote failures in relationship have taught me so much about what matters in relationship and how you choose someone. And I became such a student of it because I didn't want to go through the process of a hard breakup like that again. So I could look at myself as, Oh, I failed. I probably wouldn't have manifested something like being a co-host on a show about marriage. Right. I really had to look at it. What did I learn and how can this make me passionate about one, being able to relate to people, you know, in any kind of stage of a relationship and two, like really what, what does it take to create a healthy relationship? And that's why also I have friends like you and Lori, who I love being around who teach me so much about relationships. I think the other people do when they fail is they stop hanging around successful people or they just go into jealousy. Mm -hmm. You know, single people don't want to be around couples and people that failed at business don't want to be around successful entrepreneurs. They feel less than but it's like, no, you want to be in that energy. You want to be in that vibration. You want to be around people that are living what you want to live with no jealousy or comparison. Totally. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Now you speak a lot on millennials in business as well. And we're all trying to reach and sell to millennials because they're such a huge, valuable demographic. What is the key to marketing to millennials? (laughs) There's so many, um, and I love speaking about millennials and generational diversity uh, because there's a lot of frustration about millennials, and millennials get kind of a bad rap about being entitled. They totally do, yeah. All those things, and and some are, but listen, you know, in any generation, there (laughs) there are people that deserve kind of a bad rap, not deserve, but create it for themselves. Um, so in marketing to millennials, so much about is about relationship. You know, millennials are used to having relationships online and they want a relationship with brands. They want to be able to customize. They want to be able to interact and engage. They, they want to feel like they're, they're buying something that makes a difference. That's why one for one companies like Tom's shoes are so millennial friendly because millennials feel good. Millennials are more likely to spend on experiences than they are physical goods. So anytime they are like marketed an experience and, and they're told how they can feel about it, that's going to be way more successful than just marketing a product and telling them what this product will do for them. If you are marketing a product, you want to customize it to them, like speak specifically to them about it and be on the platforms that they're on. If you're, if you want to reach millennials, you've got to be on social media. You've got to have a website that's fresh and up to date because they're going to, they're going to research you and your best way to reach millennials is to have millennial ambassadors, you know, have brand ambassadors, hire millennials. And when you're creating, I, I, I go into so many corporations, Chris, and they do these retreats, these executive retreats. And I always say, can you please invite some of your millennials to this executive retreat? And they're like, no, this is just for the executives. And I said, and I always say, okay, well then how about just a panel of millennials? Like, you know, a few hours. And I always schedule it kind of early in the day. And they think that they're only going to want the millennials there for like two hours. But once they start hearing from the millennials and getting ideas from them about how to market, 
that the panel ends up going on like six or seven hours because there's so much value in really asking the consumer you want to target how to reach them than trying to figure it out yourself. And one of the things about millennials that you mentioned that and, and that we know is that they are way more about social cause and, and social change totally. and contribution than let's say past generations. And that plays into business as well. Is that correct? Oh, 100%. And, and social cause. And also, um, in terms of, you know, if, if you want to hire them corporate culture, like what's the culture like, do I have to work in a cubicle? Is this company, does it, is it associated with any foundation? Like what's the vision and values of this company? They, they want to know that. And it matters to them. Is the company green in any way? Um, they also want to know like who runs it in our day and age, CEOs are, are famous, you know, because they're kind of the, the face of a brand. So that, that's another big part of it too. They again, want that personal connection. And you had said that contribution is an overall part of success. We know that millennials want contribution to be a part of the brand. What role does contribution and generosity play in your business success up to this point? Oh, I think it's played, um, a huge role in terms of just keeping that flow of giving and receiving going. Um, also, you know, I mentioned USM where I got my master's degree. I was very active in volunteerism there donated, you know, a lot of time resources just because that was the place that helped me so much. Um, and, and generosity too can, can happen in other ways with family, with friends, like whatever. But I think that that, that constant practice of not just being generous with our, our money, but also generous with our time and our gifts is an important part. That's why I do a certain amount of pro bono work. Um, that's why I carve out time to help people that may not be able to quote unquote afford it at this point anyway. And why I also make sure that the gifting and tithing is, is part of my work. So that kind of naturally leads me into, um, I make everybody do what I call two minutes of bragging and for some, it's comfortable. For some, it's not. But I love exposing the role of giving in life and in business and in success to inspire others to be successful mm -hmm. and be able to give. So, Christine, what yes. is one of your favorite moments of giving that you've ever done? Oh, honestly, it was something that involved my sister. And I want to protect her, you know, privacy. Um, but there was something that was really, really, really important to her that I was able to help with financially that was life-changing for her and her family. And it brings kind of tears to my eyes as I think about it um, because she's my little sister, you know, and I was kind of hard on her growing up. And so being able to, to gift her and support her in that way was definitely one of my favorite, favorite times to give. I can literally hear, you know, you being emotional over it. I, <laughs> I can't imagine how great of a feeling that was that you put yourself into a position where you were able to do that for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's remarkable. Yeah. All right. So before I get to the last question, everybody's going to be like having a giant crush on you. They want your knowledge. They want your help. <laughs> what do you got going on and where can we find you? How can they get a hold of you? Uh, well, a couple of things. One of my favorite things is my podcast. It's called Over It and On With It. And I coach people live on the air. And this was something that came intuitively. Um, two years ago, I, I, I was meditating and I was like, how do I serve more people? How do I help more people for free? And, you know, as a, I facilitate a lot of retreats too and do group coaching and I see how much people learn when they watch or listen to someone else be coached because they can relate to it. Their defenses are down. So it's like, huh, how do I get like a call in radio advice talk show? And I thought, oh, I could create a podcast. Make your own. So yeah. So over it and on with it, every Wednesday, a life coaching episode goes up. I know nothing about the person before they start. I don't edit it. It's just raw listening to me coaching people. Um, so that's great. I'm, I, my favorite social media platform is Instagram, Christine Hassler there and Facebook. Um, and then I've got expectation hangover, the book, and then I've got some courses too. I could talk about those a little bit. Please do actually. Cause you got something exciting coming up. Yes. I just launched a relationship course, all the work on the TV show and the TV show is called the spouse house. If anyone wants to know, and uh, it made me just passionate about helping people with love. And so the, the relationship course is called get over your breakup and on with love. And your breakup could have been 20 years ago or yesterday, but it's really about getting over it and on with it in terms of love. And then in October, my personal mastery course um, launches every year. And that's a six weeks program where you get coaching from me. And it's really kind of taking the principles and expectation hangover, and, and taking you through all of that on the emotional, mental, behavioral, spiritual level with the videos and the audios and the live coaching. And if you 
really want a transformation, um, then check that out. Be sure to go to christinehasler.com to subscribe to my list so you know when that comes up. That sounds so amazing. Okay, last question, signature yeah. question. I ask everybody this. Why should people be unapologetic about their pursuit of wealth and success? Because that's what we're here for. We're not here to suffer and struggle. We're really, really not. And the more of us that pursue health and wealth and success, the more, okay, remember how I was talking about how there's this unconscious belief like germs in the environment? Mm -hmm. The more of the good stuff we put out there, the more successful I am and you are and everybody listening is, the more we kind of put that out there into the universe and the more people can grab onto it. You know, my coach always says success breeds more success. The more successful, happy, healthy, wealthy people there are, the more we can impact the world and the more other people can catch on to that. So success is not selfish and, and, and being wealthy is not selfish. We've got to get out of that mindset because health and wealth on all levels is, is what's going to change the world. And we've got a lot, we've got a lot going on in this world <laughs> that it's going to take some new thinking and it's also going to take money. And so the more people that are up leveling on all levels, the more we're going to be able to come up with the ideas and the actual tactical tools that can change a lot of these things. Oh, Christine, I love it. I, it was so simple when you said we were not put here to struggle. It's like a wake up no. call when you hear that. It's no, like we're really call. not. We've got to get rid of our addiction to suffering. Yes, expectation hangovers happen. They often get us on our path. There's, you know, life happens. Like I, I will say this, do I still have expectation hangovers? Yes. Do I have them less frequently? Yes. Is the time I spend suffering in them a lot less? Yes. So I'm still human. I'm still growing. I have my days. But honestly, that that kind of like needing to suffer and struggle, that is something nice to be free from. Oh, I'll say. I'll say. Christine, I can't thank you enough. I'm so excited for every single person that's going to listen to this because you have offered so many nuggets of awesome, valuable information. This one episode alone can just change somebody's life. So I'm super oh. grateful to you. Well, thank you, Chris. I just adore you and appreciate you and Lori so much as, as friends, as inspiration. You know, you come with so much heart and so much integrity. I'm so glad that you're putting more of your work and voice out in the world. And I just love this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a joint effort. All of us together, right? Exactly. Love it. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.